The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Here, take a minute. I just showed this a second ago. Take a minute, look at the, at the handout that you have. Look at the very last page. Look at the second to very last thing. Okay, AD are, are my initials, but this is just an observation. Somebody read the second to last thing uh, on, the, on the handout. All right, all of the stuff that we have to cover from Owen on mortification does, isn't even mortification. Mortification happens at the moment of temptation. So it occurred to me that I haven't really helped you guys like I need to, like false advertising. I haven't taught you how to slay the temptation. So these verses are the best I could think of at 9.05 this morning on slaying the temptation. This is what I think of when I think of the moment of the battle, what do you need? These are verses that have helped me for years. And there's more besides. I just thought about cutting off your right hand a moment ago. It's, it's a fertile topic. So what I think we should do to maximize our time, I'm going to pray in a minute, is go through mortification, the handout, quickly, half hour. All right, you've got the handout. Go back and look at it. It's, it's greatly uh, streamlined. It's public domain, so almost certainly you can get at this stuff for free this afternoon online. You can get it at, at Owen on Mortification for free online, on Audible as well. It's, it's going to be there for you. You can sometimes find interesting pastors that will read these old Puritan things for you on YouTube. So I've done some of that before. Like I found Heaven is a World of Love read by a, a guy not the greatest reader, but it, it's, you can listen to it while you drive, and so it's not bad. Uh, but then the second half of the time, I want to equip you for the moment where the battle is fought. The basic approach that I'm teaching on mortification is that you can't kill any categorical sin pattern, but you can greatly weaken it. And you, you can and must actually kill individual temptations. So the image I had, this is, I don't know if this will help you, illustrations only go so far, but I think about the relationship between a radio station and the signal it puts out, right? So you could think of a radio station like uh, down in this tobacco warehouse area, there's WUNC, I'm sure it's a public broadcasting thing, I've never listened to it, but it's got a call signs, FM station, so that's the station, okay? But it puts out a signal and the image here and the analogy is you can block the signal or turn off the radio, but you can't blow up the radio station, however much some of you may desire uh, to blow up this or that or the other radio station. You can't destroy a sin categorically. It's going to keep out sending signals, keep on. But what you can do is move further and further away so the signal gets weaker and weaker. That's the image. That's the whole, that's summation of the whole class. And the, the thing on, on the class is the key thing is, as Owen says there uh, on, the second to last, on the last page, second to last statement, get ready to mortify and then mortify. So you've got to get ready ahead of time and maybe watch and pray as part of that is get ready. But then you've got to fight. And as you succeed in a particular moment of temptation, as you fight, it's going to get better in that area. It's going to get, you know, that's sanctification. That's the whole thing. So let's, um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, I thank you for this uh, time that we have. 
Help us to maximize the, the, the way that we spend this time. Our time is limited, Lord. You're, our days are numbered and uh, our, our minutes are numbered. We don't have limitless time. And so I just pray that you would give us grace to maximize the time we have in this last class on, on negative sanctification and mortification. Just help us, O oh Lord, to understand what John Owen has said and then to understand just techniques and methods of fighting in the moment of temptation. So I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I propose to do, uh, we got to get out of here at quarter past, is to um, spend roughly half, a little more than half our time walking through Owen, and then in the spirit of what he says at the end, saying, by the way, this isn't actual mortification. This is just preparation for mortification. I'm then going to just walk through briefly these texts and what they will do for you to help you in the moment of battle. That's, that's my thought. And then you know, our time will be gone. So let's go ahead and open to, um, to the handout uh, foundational text. Uh, again, if I could just give you one key concept in this class, it's that everything you need for mortification of sin is found in the scripture. The scripture, you don't need anything more than scripture. All right, so Owen is a help. My, my teaching ministry may be a help. This BFL class may be a help. But you have everything you need for life and godliness in the word of God and the indwelling spirit. It's everything you need. And so uh, even more concentrated, Romans 6 through 8 are the key chapters on mortification, on the key chapters on sanctification in the entire Bible. So I would not necessarily say everything you need for mortification is in Romans 6 through 8, but I might come close to saying that. I might come close to saying that 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 teaching on holiness is foundational to our understanding of progressive sanctification. So those are key chapters. So if you're like, I can't remember, what was the name of that guy that wrote that book? That what, Don't worry about Romans 6 through 8. You'll have it for the rest of your life. Just go, to, go there and, and, and imbibe those those uh, chapters. So I've done a lot of review. I'm not going to do literally any review on Romans 6 through 8. But it starts with the key text. Can someone read it for, uh, for us in Romans 8, 13? Okay, King James Version, uh, authorized version. Um, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's ESV. So we have different translations, but that's foundational. Um, I would go beyond. I'd like to add the next verse. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. All right. So you put it together, then we would have this, that among the many vital ministries of the Holy Spirit in your life is he will lead you to mortify. So you put it together. It's not just generally leading you. Who should I marry? What job should I have? The leadership of God. That's all true and helpful in other places. But in this context, the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to mortify the deeds of the flesh. So he's leading you to mortify. He is the, the captain in this fight. He's saying, follow me, and we're going to go mortify. So I've, the image I have is basically every day, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit gets you up and leads you into battle. That's what he's going to do every day. He's going to lead you into battle. And you can't avoid the battle. To avoid the battle is to be taken out of this world. While you're in this world, you must fight. And that's what he's saying. <clears throat> you have to kill uh, the deeds of the body. You have to mortify. So definition, the mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it might not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh is the constant duty of believers. So 
The idea is a long, slow death by starvation to deprive sin of the resources it needs to be vigorous and active in your life. That's the image that we have here. We're not teaching perfection, perfectionism. I actually do teach and, and I'm thrilled about perfection in heaven. And we've had the joy of going through Revelation 21, 22. It's a radiant place. It will be, and I get to talk about that in, a, in an hour or so or hour and a half, that it's going to be a perfectly pure place, including us. So that's, we can look for, and we, and we actually should think about that a lot. It gives you so much strength to fight individual sins and temptations to know someday I'm going to be completely victorious over all of these sins. It's just so helpful. <clears throat> but that's what mortification is. So who must mortify? Christians. Every Christian must mortify. And the implication of the, the logic, for those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God, we can say in our minds, these only are the children of God. If you are not mortifying, you're not alive. The Holy Spirit's not in you. Holy Spirit's never going to take a day off. He is relentlessly vigilant in this matter. He knows the danger of sin far better than you do, and he's never going to give you a day off. And so if you are not mortifying, you're not a Christian, I would say. Just as a few verses earlier, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. So I, I think we can make just a, as clear an assertion exegetically. If you don't have the indwelling Spirit, you're not a Christian. And if the indwelling Spirit is in you, he will lead you to mortify. We can also say if you're not mortifying sins by the Spirit, you're not a Christian. So that's pretty weighty if you think about it. You think about all the churches that are just not teaching this, they're not talking about this. I'm not saying they, they are therefore not mortifying, because I just said if they're genuinely born again in those bad teaching churches, they are mortifying. But they're just not getting help from the pastor. They're not getting help from the church like they should. That's all I'm saying. And so I think it's part of the role of the local church to help its members mortify the deeds of the flesh. So that's what we're doing. All right, so Christians have to mortify. The deeds are the outward actions connected with it, but also the taproot of it, the root system. We want to pour poison on the root system in a very good, beneficial way, the poison, so to speak, from the perspective of the root system of sin. From us, the, the delightful, rich teaching of the Word of God, of the kingdom of God, will kill sin. So we want to see the root system dying. And so the mortification is carried out by the Holy Spirit. Owen says this, all other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. By Him alone is it to be wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. And this is a key statement that Owen gives us. Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. It's an incredible statement, but it's, it's true. Make up your own ways of becoming a better person. That's a religion. That's, your own, that's a worldly, pagan religion. So, by the third person of the Trinity alone, do we mortify. Now, the third person of the Trinity is basing all of his work on the previous ordaining, decreeing, kingly work of the first person of the Trinity and the finished priestly work of the second person of the Trinity. There's a total harmony between the person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit together mortifying. But the direct active agent is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, by Him. Now, we've asked before, um, well, let's keep going. What promise is attached to this? Eternal life. 
a rich, full, abundant life now as best you can. We have to say that, sadly. We would be perfect in this world if we could. We have a yearning for it. We have a hungering and thirsting for it, right? Or you're not a Christian. You have a yearning for holiness, a yearning for righteousness. You would be perfect now if you could. However, we do understand the more successful you are in slaying temptations, the more fruitful your life's going to be. The more peaceful, your conscience will not be accusing you. You'll have no skeletons in the closet, nothing to fear. Okay? You'll lead a bold, confident, fruitful life. You'll be more vigorous in evangelism. You'll be a better husband, better father. You'll be able to, to, you'll be a better leader in every respect. Just everything starts to flourish and green and produce fruit. So uh, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. You can have that abundant life of holiness and fruit in the gospel now. But mortification is a key uh, precursor to that. So, uh, abundant life now, but really, ultimately, eternal life. Only those that mortified, as they had opportunity, go to heaven, live forever, go through the gates into the new Jerusalem. Just, just the holy, righteous, redeemed. Now, when I say as they had, ever, had opportunity, I, I understand there can be deathbed conversions. There can be thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. Didn't have much time for mortification. Not much of a track record there. I understand that. And, and I just want to say, and this is so vital, just keep clinging to justification by faith alone. As you fight your sins, just keep reminding yourself you are standing in the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Because it can be pretty discouraging. You know what I mean? I mean, it can be very discouraging. You're fighting in specific areas and Satan mounts up attacks and it, you can have some pretty low days. But honestly, even those low days are much to God's purpose because they strip you of pride and arrogance. They make you pray more. They, they humble you. I mean, God, I mean, let's just say it very beautifully. God can't lose in this. He is going to win. He, he, he just is victorious here. So as you stand at the fork in the road, it is infinitely better for you to choose righteousness rather than sin. But even if you choose sin, he's not going to lose you. Yeah, Rick, go ahead, brother. Yeah, well, Owen is writing in the 17th century, and so they have a very vigorous memory of medieval Catholicism with monasteries and nunneries and different other things. And I mean, you just have to go back to what Martin Luther thought he needed to do to not go to hell. And so he withdrew from his career as a lawyer in training, to save himself from hell in the midst of an electrical storm in, the, in a muddy field somewhere, he says, help me, St. Anne, I shall become a monk. Well, where'd that come from? Did God tell him to pray to St. Anne and go become a monk in an Augustinian cloister? But that's what was available at the time, and what did he do when he got there? He worked even harder than any of the other monks. And he's scrubbing floors, and he's fasting and praying. He won't sleep on the bed they provided for him. He's on the floor. Who told him to do that? And the fact is, actually, harsh treatment of the body that Luther was doing at that point is is completely denied as effective in Colossians chapter 2. It's actually not going to mortify. So that would be one example of self-mortification by self-invention. But again, mortification is more negative. So it would be like getting rid of, you know, maybe some of the 12-step programs or some other things that people do to try to stop drinking or stop this or stop that. They know they need to stop doing things. But they're not doing it by the biblical means of biblical truth expounded and taught like we're doing now and then the Holy Spirit applying those and convicting you and enlightening you, encouraging you, that activity. That's 
the way that God's given us here, based on the finished work of Christ. So that's what I think he means. Very good question. So what comes from all this? What do you get? You get life. You get to live. You get to live in Jesus right now. You get to be fruitful today. And that's so beautiful. I mean, you think about, let's say, having a pattern of sinful conflict with your wife. You get to not do that this afternoon. Instead, you get to love her, encourage her, pray for her, and walk as a godly man this afternoon. Better than sinfully arguing with her. See what I'm saying? I mean, there's just wickedness that comes, and it's like, kill it. And instead, you can have a fruitful, beautiful afternoon in which you display Christ-like love to your wife and encourage your sons and daughters. And I think that's worth doing. So that's abundant life now, but then even better, you get to walk through the gates. You'll, have, you'll wash your robes and have the right to enter the new Jerusalem and eat from the tree of life. That's the image given in Revelation 22. So that's what live means. All right, let's keep going. The duty of the best believers and the evil of neglecting this duty, okay? All Christians are called on to mortify. So the best, the choicest believers are called on to do this. In other words, you will never graduate from this. It's not like as you get better and better in mortification, you have less and less need to mortify. You're actually going to become more and more active and aware of how comprehensive this duty is. So that, that's why Owen says the choicest believers make it, must make it their duty every day to mortify. You can never stop. He said you must mortify. You must make it your daily work. You must be constantly at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Your being dead with Christ virtually, your being quickened with, with him will not excuse you from this work. Actually, it will empower you to do the work. So you must do it. And so sin is relentlessly coming after you. You must relentlessly fighting and effectively come after sin. You can come after sin. You can, you can do some sorties and some assaults and some attacks. Like when he tells you to cut off, I will get to this, cut off your right hand if it's causing you sin. That's an attack. Sin didn't like that. One fr phrase I use to myself is frustrate the flesh. What the flesh wants to do, don't do it. So there's just things you can do, but be killing sin. Go after it, or it's going to be coming after you. And sin is frequently, in Paul's writings, personified. So sin is intelligent, sin is deceptive, sin is all these things that are very personal descriptions. So Paul does that with sin. Sin is relentless. Sin is watchful. Sin is probing for an opportunity. It like, sounds like Satan. Well, it's the same kind of language. Satan and sin, almost like synonyms there. And so Satan is relentlessly coming after you. He's intelligent. He's got schemes. We talk about the schemes of the devil. There's an intelligence to it. It's a chess match. You're like, wow, this is overwhelming. It just is, guys. It's not, it's not like I'm, I'm making something up. It's like you already know it's true. You know it's going on. But what Owen's is, Owen is saying to you is you've got to be after this. Be killing sin or sin's going to be killing you. What does it mean? He can't kill you and send, to hell, send you to hell. But what he can do is do to you what you're trying to do to sin. He can greatly weaken you and greatly sap you of spiritual strength and, and lay you low and get you to do very little for Jesus, though he can't kill you and send, send you to hell. So basically what, what you're trying to do to sin, sin's trying to do to you. It's, that's why it says be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So it's constantly necessary because of indwelling sin uh, you know, Owen said this, when sin leaves us alone, then we may leave sin alone. Well, sin isn't going to leave us alone. Romans 7 is the foundation. We've been through it. I'm not going to read it, but the verses are right there. There is sin living in me. And by the way, I've said before, this is, 
This is very, very weird. This whole thing is weird. All right? How can you have sin living in me and the Holy Spirit living in me at the same time? But it's biblically true. There are verses that prove it. There is sin living in me, and Paul, who wrote it, was writing that by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So while he's writing that there's sin living in me, he's also exemplifying that the Spirit is living in him. Well, that's intolerable. The Holy Spirit is tolerating it for a while, but he will have his way in the end by you dying or Jesus coming back and you getting your resurrection body. Praise God, you'll be glorified. So this is a temporary situation and I would say a very painful situation, but it's reality. This is what we've got now. Indwelling sin, indwelling spirit, battling. So Galatians 5 says the spirit wars against the flesh. The flesh wars against the spirit. They're at odds with each other so that you do not do what you want. So that's what's going on. And then Owen says, sin, as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is least suspicion. In other words, if it seems like all quiet on the Western Front, don't be deceived. It's kind of like one of the old, like Jaws, one of those old shark movies. You know, the waters are looking placid. I think it's a good time for a dip, you know? <laughs> It's like everybody knows, everybody watching the movies, like, don't go swimming now. This is not the time to go. So just because you can't see the danger, it's there. And so you're like, man, you just never can rest. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't minister. Actually, he does minister peace to us. He does give us assurance of our final salvation. There are moments of rest and peace, but they generally come after a successful battle against temptation. You wage war successfully against temptation. The devil flees from you. Like in one of the verses, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Then the Spirit will come and minister to you, renew you and strengthen you and give you a strong assurance that you're a child of God. And those are pretty sweet moments. So it's not all grim and all battle, but you've got to fight for it. He will not do the same ministry to you if you cave in and yield to the lust. He won't come and uh, put an arm around you and, and tell you that you've done well and all that. He won't tell you. That's exactly what he won't say. He will tell you you're a child of God, but he'll tell you children of God shouldn't behave like that. So that's a difficult moment at that point. But if you want a sweet time of peaceful rest in Jesus here in this world, then kill the temptation, and then he will give you a strong assurance. It's a beautiful thing to see. So um, if anybody, uh, you've got to stop me kind of like a freight train, um, but say something. Believe me, I love, I love having any, any questions about this. All right, do many people or only a few people do this? Well, first of all, to some degree, it doesn't matter. You should care about what your brothers and sisters are doing, but you should not take your cues from what everybody else is doing. The question you have to do is say, am I mortifying like I need to? Or is sin gaining ascendancy over me? And if your other brothers and sisters, you're not seeing a lot of them doing that, then that just ups the responsibility we have to be bold in this area. People need us to be holy. We need to lead out in this area. So what Owen says is in his day, there's a noise of religion and religious duties in every corner, preaching in abundance. So that if you will measure the number of believers by light and gifts and profession, the church may have cause to say, who has borne me all these? That's a language from Isaiah saying, look at all the spiritual children I have. I mean, the tent is big now. We got lots of things going on. But Owen continues, but now... If you will take the measure of them by this great discriminating grace of Christians, namely mortification, perhaps you will find the number is not as abundant as you thought it was. Thankfully, we really don't know the true answer. I mean, people, we, we should accept people as they appear to be. 
But the more you get into, into good, close discipleship relationships, you may find how much we need help in this area. This is something we need help in. So appearances can be deceiving. That's all Owen's saying. Next chapter, the work of the Spirit and mortification. Now, the great sovereign cause of all true mortification, as we've been saying, is the Holy Spirit. The principal efficient cause of the performance of this duty is the Spirit. All other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. Human strivings apart from the Spirit are false and will fail. He is the only one that can do this. Now, the outline doesn't say, but let me just stop and say, how does he do this? How does the Holy Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh and the life of a believer? So I'm just going to stop because the outline doesn't say, what would the answer be? So he convicts us. So negatively, let's say you failed. Holy Spirit's not going to throw up his hands and walk out of your life. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. But what he will do is he'll convict you. And what does that feel like, the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit? It's painful. Does he mean for it to be painful? He actually does. Do you remember when, when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? The third time it says Peter was hurt. You see that? It's right in the text. Peter was hurt. So was Jesus blundering like a bull in a china shop there by hurting Peter? No, he meant to hurt him, but only to heal him. All right. Why would the Holy Spirit want to hurt you in a situation like that? <clears throat> Get your attention. The pain is necessary to teach you to not do it again. That's what he does. So he works by making you feel, let's keep it simple, making you feel really badly after you've sinned. And I think it's, there's false teaching out there. It's almost like you should never feel badly as a Christian. There's no shame. Jesus has taken all my shame. All this kind of language. It's like, I don't embrace that. I understand in justification that's all true, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about sanctification. Is there not a place for feeling badly after you've sinned? And whatever you want to call it, if you don't like the word shame, just some strong negative feeling about what you did. I think that sounds like shame, but the idea is that you would feel vigorously negative about it. Now, in Peter's case, why would it be important for him to not melt like a snowflake at the threat of incarceration and death? Just as, given his role going forward. Why would it be really important for Peter to not melt like a snowflake when there was a threat of an attack? By the, why so? Why is there going to be a lot of threats on Peter? He's the leader God had planned for him in about 40 days to get up and preach the Pentecost sermon. Any chance of opposition? Yes, read about it in the book of Acts. So he had to learn to hate his own cowardice, his own denying Jesus that he even, even knew him. He's got to hate that and never do it again. So that's true. The Holy Spirit makes us feel badly about our past failings. What else does he do? So he actually positively, I think, drives out dark desires by giving you a delight in the corresponding holy desire. Like you think about struggles that we all have with, with sexual attraction. What he does is he shows you the proper role of sex in the Christian life, the good gift of God that it is. So we don't end up perverted or like the, the Roman Catholics that, that forbid marriage, which is the doctrine of demons, actually. So doctrine of demons equals forbidding marriage. That's demonic, all right? Instead, to embrace and delight in marriage and to enable you to flourish in that if you have one. And even if you're single, you can still do that. There's just a delighting in the positive aspect, and not just with sex and married life, but just the positive delights of holiness. 
how beautiful holiness is. Rick, go ahead. So if I could just keep it simple, I think the Holy Spirit does a negative and positive work in us to help us in this, all right? Negatively, he causes us to hate wickedness and to take practical steps against it. Positively, causes us to love righteousness and take practical steps to expand righteousness. I think that's the basic activity of the Spirit. And in that, he uses the Word of God to do both. He uses the ministry of the Word. He delights in the ministry of the Word to show you what is wickedness, what is lawlessness, what things God hates, shows it to you in Scripture. And not just that in Scripture, but shows the outcomes of that. Like you can see David in adultery and where it all led. You could well imagine, just use your imagination, if you're talking to David on his deathbed, say, David, if you could do one thing different in your life, what would you do? We don't need to ask. You know right away what he would say. I would have been out in the field with the army and not home. But if I were home, I wouldn't have gone out on the roof. And if I looked, I would have run screaming from that moment. That's what I would do. For all the damage that that sin caused me in Israel, I would do it differently. So we're like, all right, I didn't need to live David's life to see if I do similar things, I might expect a similar outcome. So you have that. So negatively, there's the negative work. And then positively, you get us to love and delight in the beauty of holiness. That holiness isn't some, some drab, stark, like monastery, self-denial thing. Holiness is radiant beauty lined up with the character of God, that we're going to be delighting in the radiant beauty of the holiness of God. And so it's both. Love righteousness, hate wickedness. Yeah. Yes, I think that's completely valid. But I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at individual commands of God. God's, God's commands are not burdensome. And just take a command like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is right down the center of what you're saying, and see how that command flows from the character of God. Or even a negative command like, you shall not commit adultery. See how that flows positively from the character of God. I think all, both of those are fine. All right, let's keep going. The usefulness of mortification, well... He said, the life, vigor, and comfort of our spiritual life depend much on the mortification of sin. So if you want to be vibrantly, I'm in Roman numeral four, by the way, usefulness of mortification. You want to be vibrantly alive in Jesus, have a sense of like spiritual energy coursing through your spiritual veins, whatever that means. You just have crackling strong energy spiritually. You love God's word. You just love to come to worship. You love prayer times. You just love all of these things. You want to be like that, mortify. That's what he's saying. If you're not like that, suspect that sin is sapping your strength. That there's some kind of like internal bleeding or some kind of infection, you know, using a, a medical analogy that's draining your strength. Something's wrong. And so zero in on this. It depends on mortification. Sin weakens the soul and deprives it of, of strength, and it also darkens the soul and deprives it of light. So you're not going to be as clear in your mind, uh, things like that. Mortification prunes all the graces of God and makes room for them to grow in our hearts. He says, Owen says, the life and fruitfulness of the soul is likened to a garden in which the plants of God's grace flourish when they're not competing with weeds for nutrients. Think about the third category of sin, and it's, it's, it's sown among the weeds, and you get the image of there's a finite number of nutrients in the soil. And if the weeds are sucking all that up, the plant's not going to flourish. It's not going to be fruitful. So it says that he prunes every, every branch that'll be even more fruitful. Or you could say weeds every garden so it'll be more fruitful. So mortification causes you to be vigorous in your own life to cut things out that are draining strength out of you spiritually. Peace is impossible without mortification. Sin, willful sin, assaults assurance of salvation. It just assaults it. 
So what that means is if you're in a willful pattern of violating your conscience, don't expect to have a vigorous assurance of your final salvation. It doesn't mean you're not going to heaven. It just means you will not know much about it. You'll wonder, you'll have doubts, you'll have fears, you'll have concerns, and well, you should. So if you want to have a robust assurance of your own salvation, in a sense, you can almost like taste it, then mortify. That's what he's saying. You're going to mortify the deeds of the flesh. All right, now, what mortification is not? Mortification is not to utterly kill a sin. I, I keep saying categorically, like, like sexual lust would be a category of sin. Covetousness is a category of sin, right? Uh, laziness is a category of sin. And a, a complaining spirit is a category of sin. There's lots of them. You can't kill any of them. Anything you can label like that, you can't put a red X through it and say, that will never trouble me again. We've been very clear about that. You're going to keep being troubled in all those areas, and you're going to be troubled especially in the areas where you've sinned many times before. So if you sin in one category especially many times before, that area is going to continue to trouble you. But thanks be to God, you can weaken its temptations. You can weaken its pull by saying no. All right? So uh, mortification is... All right, let me keep going with what it's not. Mortification of sin is not obviously lying about it. Telling all your friends how well you're doing and you're not doing well. That is not mortification. Let's just be very simple about that. I mean, you can deceive others, but that's not mortification. Uh, mortification is not uh, to develop a quiet, sedate nature. <laughs> and mortification is not to divert it to some other thing. It's like, you know, you used to do this pattern of sin and now you never do that anymore. Now you do it this way. That is not mortification. Uh, sin is not mortified when it's only uh, diverted. And it's not to have occasional conquests of it. It's a war similar to, let's, let's ask Winston Churchill, how do you feel about Adolf Hitler like in 1944? You've been making really good progress the last two years. You ready to make a separate peace now with Hitler? I mean, you guys are in a much better position, especially after D-Day. What do you think Churchill would say? No, we're going through until he's dead. <laughs> until Nazi Germany's dead, we're, we're not stopping until that's done. And so that's what it is. It's like a, a, a campaign, a war, big picture, and then individual campaigns that are relentlessly attacking this thing until you are out of this world and glorified. That's what we're talking about. So yeah, there are going to be battles. You'll win some, you'll lose some. I wish you would only win them. I wish I would only win them. But I'm just saying, you're going to win some and lose some. But either way, you're going to keep fighting. And you're going to fight, 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 fight more and more and more. That's what mortification is. That's what we're talking about. All right, so we have to stop. Um, look at number seven. This is really interesting. Um, I, yeah, six. Mortification is success against sin. So let's go for the wins. All right? It is a big deal when you win. So if a particular temptation has been having particular victories over you, and you, because of, let's say, this class make new resolutions and determinations, and actually don't sin the next time, praise God. That's huge. Thank God. Get down on your knees and say, thank you, God. I know I would have ordinarily done X. Now I didn't. It's not over yet, but just rejoice that we're looking for those victories. And with those victories, as there's more and more, there's just more and more assurance going to come in your life. More and more vigor is going to come. But just praise God. Rejoice. I mean, seriously, if we're going to say that the Holy Spirit will express negative emotion to you when you fail, why wouldn't he express, express positive emotion to you when you succeed? Of course he will. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, right there and then because you need to hear it. 
because you need to be told you're doing well. It's good, good that you're doing it. So be encouraged. <clears throat> Universal sincerity is required. This is really a, one of the hardest teachings there is on sanctification. When I wrote my book, Infinite Journey, I became overwhelmed by all how pervasive the commands of God are on sanctification. They cover everything. And which of those many duties are you exempt from? Which one are you going to particularly focus on to the exclusion of the others? Which one the Holy Spirit say, I know you're, you've been really busy recently. <clears throat> I want you to work on prayer. Don't worry about how you are with your wife or your job or, or any of those other things. You just zero in on prayer right now. That is not going to work. So what Owen's saying, universal sincerity or effort is made. Everything you're aware of that's part of the Christian life, be on it. That's, that's pretty, pretty relentless. And, and you're like... <clears throat> But if the devil gets in it some way, he's going to start doing havoc in other areas. So just, just whatever you know the Christian life to be, just by God's grace, do it. That's what he's saying. Okay, let's move on. <clears throat> Go now, if you would, to the whiteboard. So it occurred to me, if you would, could somebody read the second last statement? We've already, a few of you have read it, but not everyone is here at the time. Go to the very end of the handout. Could someone read? It says AD. That, those are my initials. But this is my summary of what Owen said. Somebody read the second to last statement. Okay, so all the things we've learned from Owen, it's not actually mortification. <laughs> now, I've been saying that basically all morning. <clears throat> all I'm trying to do is get you ready for the fight. That's what we're doing in this class. That's what you do in your quiet time in the morning. You just get ready. How do you actually fight? Now, here are some verses that I wrote down <clears throat> about 910. Now, you may say, no, Pastor, 905, why did you wait so long to write all these down? Well, I've been really busy this week, and I said, forget it. Um, but I don't know, it hit me that I had not talked about how to defeat specific temptation enough. I've talked some, but these are verses that came to my mind. And this isn't a comprehensive list, all right? And, and in no particular order. The first verse I would give you, I would commend to you, is 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. There Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. Everyone that competes in the games goes into strict training. They do, do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. So he uses an athletic analogy there for extreme exertion in holiness. Now, it's interesting, it's at a nexus point in 1 Corinthians where he's also talking about evangelism and becoming all things to all people. So it's really good crossroads for the two journeys because he goes right on into that in 1 Corinthians 10 talking about the sins of Israel and how most of them died in the desert because they weren't holy, because they were idolatrous and sexually immoral. So there's definitely a crossroads of beating your body for both journeys, but let's focus on holiness. What do you think he means by, I beat my body and make it my slave? Yeah, so they're, they're, they're showing discipline over their own bodies for the, for the end of athletic success. That's right. exactly right. And here's the thing. We, we are surrounded by lawful pleasures. Food, entertainment, sports, hobbies, all this thing. We are surrounded by these things all the time. If you don't show self-control like universally in these areas, don't be surprised if there's a particular besetting sin that you know is wrong that you're going to be weak in that too. See what I'm saying? Because you're not saying no to yourself hardly ever. You're going to watch as much sports as you want to. You're going to eat as much food as you want to. You're going to do what you want to do. 
Well, what that means is you're not living a self-denying life. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. What are you denying? How are you living any differently than a pagan, actually? So there's a pattern of discipline and self-control. So I would urge you to look at issues of sleep, issues of food, issues of, um, of entertainment and lawful pleasures and say, are these things, like Rick just said, are they dominating me or I am in charge of them? And if you don't know, I would suggest fasting from something for a while. Fast from electronic entertainment for two weeks. Just try it. And if you find that easy, no problem, then it probably doesn't have a big hold in your life. Okay? But if you find it remarkably difficult to, to imagine your evening without Netflix and to imagine, you know, without things you do on your smartphone. I'm not even talking about wicked things. I'm talking about just lawful pleasure. You can't imagine then it probably already has gained ascendancy over you. You're not, you're, you're not living a mortified life. So beat your body, make it your slave. It does not mean what, what, what Martin Luther was doing in that monastic cell. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is everything you choose to do, be disciplined in it. And I would say use certain fasts, including just simple fasting. Just try not eating. It could be that food has ascendancy in your life. All right, secondly, watch and pray. All right, Matthew 26, 41. This is in Gethsemane. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. He went away from the other nine. And then he goes a little further and he prays. And he comes back and finds them sleeping. And to paraphrase, it's like, do you not know what you're about to go through? Do you have any sense of what this night is all about? Peter sure didn't. And he had already warned Peter that, that Satan was demanding to sift all of them like wheat. But I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith won't fail. If I heard Jesus say that to me, I'd be like, what's going on? What's happening tonight? Well, what's happening tonight, Peter, is when you die, or the day before you die, you will look back on this as the worst night of your life. The worst time you ever had. Just like David, if we asked him what was the worst time, Peter would say, in a heartbeat, the time I denied Jesus. And what was he doing? Sleeping. So what does Jesus tell him to do? Watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. Now, why would that be a key verse on how to fight? Watch and pray. Yeah. I mean, there's this old statement in political science, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. So the idea there is if you want to stay free, you better watch your borders. You better watch all the time. So here's the thing. You can say, well, isn't this still just preparation? It is preparation. But I think it's how you should live every moment. It's like, I'm aware, I'm aware, I'm aware, I'm aware, I'm watching, 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 watching. Satan's going to come. I know he's going to come. I'm watchful. I'm alert. Life is spiritually dangerous. I'm never free. So you're watching. Well, that's only part of it. Watch and pray. You remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and the other nine were down there and were unable to drive out a demon? Though Jesus had given them power in Matthew 10 to drive out a demon. This was Matthew 17. Couldn't do it. And uh, the father who bought the son there wasn't really in to the apostles or even Jesus at that point because he said to him, if you can do anything, could you do it? If not, I'm going home. It was just this sense of, of I don't really see much happening here. My son's still demon-possessed. And Jesus says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Who do you think he's thinking about when he says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation? Who's he thinking about? The father and the son? the disciples, the, the apostles. And they come to him privately later and say, why couldn't we drive, drive him out? And he said, because this kind only comes out by prayer. Wow. So what does that mean they didn't do? Pray. 
So they tried to drive the demon out by their own strength. How did that work? <laughs> Didn't work. All right. So here's the thing. And so what I would say is there is no demon that doesn't come out by, by praying. I mean, that's the, all of them do. So you, if you try to do it on your own, you're in deep trouble. So a total sense of dependence on God through the Holy Spirit, that's vital. So as you're being tempted, as you're in a hard situation, watch and pray, watch and pray. Say, God, help me. God, strengthen me. I need your help. Be very God conscious. Does that make sense? All right, number three, stand your ground. This is Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Jesus says there, or Paul says there, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. All right, I got it. Four times he says stand. Stand, 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 stand. So what does that mean to you in the moment of temptation? Stand your ground. Don't move toward it. Just don't say yes. Say, I just can't do that. So you're utterly determined to not give in in this. You're not going to fight for a while and then say, look, I fought a good battle. It's like, you don't want to, that's the way the losers talk in the locker room. Yeah, we gave it, we gave it a good try. It's like, no, I don't want to, f- I've done that already many times. I, do, I want I want to say no, and I want in the end to win, so I'm just going to stand. So the full armor of God is there to enable you to stand, but that's, and, and I could go into the full armor now, and I could. It's beneficial, but I'm just saying, put on the armor. Why? So that you can stand. So that when the temptation came, in the end, you killed it. By the way, I love this image in, in Luke chapter 4, how it says that Jesus went into the desert. He was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And then after the temptation, we'll get to that in just a moment, he left the desert filled with the Spirit. So he entered the devil, or sorry, the desert filled with the Spirit. He left the desert filled with the Spirit. I'm thinking that's the way to do every temptation. Go into every temptation filled with the Spirit and then come out still filled with the Spirit. That's, that's your goal. Does that make sense? So Jesus did it. We can do it. That's, that's stand your ground. Fourth, fight by Scripture. It's the very thing I just talked about. So he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil, and the devil came at him. If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil led him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All this has been given to me, said the devil, and I'll give it to anyone I want to. So if you'll bow down and worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus said to him, Um, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil took him to a high point in the temple and quoted scripture to him saying, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so they don't strike your foot against a stone. And he said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting scripture, scripture, scripture. Interestingly, all three of them come from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. It's just interesting. It led me to memorize Deuteronomy sometime after that. It's like, it's good for Jesus, good for me. All right, I need Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, I need the help. I need the help. But Jesus had it memorized. He had so fight by Scripture. Use Scripture. Use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And frankly, the shield of faith is really Scripture to me, too, because faith comes by hearing, and you can see in the invisible spiritual realm, see what God's doing. As you're super-saturated in Scripture, you're going to just see what's going on. 
And you're going to lift up the shield of faith, which is Scripture. And you're going to lift up the sword of the Spirit, which is Scripture. You're going to fight by Scripture. You're going to see things scripturally, and you're going to fight. So memorize specific Scriptures that help you in weak areas. Memorize them. I mean, if you're struggling with sexual lust, then memorize that. If you're struggling with laziness, memorize that. If you're struggling with procrastination, memorize that. If you uh, struggle with sinful anger, like toward your spouse or toward your kids or something like that, memorize scriptures. That'll help you. All right, so fight by scripture. Fifth, run for your life. All right, now, I've said before, I've noted this, that how different stand your ground and run for your, for, for your life seem. So I think I'm just going to put them together because they're both true. Stand your ground by running for your life. That's basically the way I look at it. So what do you think I mean by run for your life? There's a picture uh, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. How does that instruct us? Jim, what do you think? How does that instruct us? Get out of the situation. Run for your life. And the key thing on this is um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. <clears throat> no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear but with the temptation will make a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. So they're, they're right in the same verse. Stand up by escaping. So what do you think that means, a way of escape? Kevin, what do you think that means, a way of escape? Right, keep in mind, temptation is purely circumstantial. There's a specific time and moment and set of circumstances that make up the temptation. It's not abstract, it's actually happening, it's on. It's a given Tuesday morning or Wednesday night or something like that. And this and this and this has happened. And this is where your mind's at. And then this opportunity or situation comes up. It's very circumstantial. So run for your life would be get out of that set of circumstances. Go out for a walk. Call a friend. Break, break the thing up. Do something. to Don't allow that set of circumstances that seems so cleverly, demonically arranged to get you to sin just get out of his, his trap. Like the, like the spider says, welcome into my lair, said the spider to the fly. It's like, I don't want to be in your lair. I don't want to be in the place you've set up. And so I'm going to try to extricate myself from that situation. So you run. All right, so God is going to make a way of escape. Ask him. I would say, watch him pray. Say, God, you said you'd make a way of escape. What is it? All right, do X right now. Holy Spirit will tell you what to do. And you get out of it. And if you're not prepared, it's going to show up probably long before three minutes are over. Uh, my guess, I never wrestle, but you know, I've heard it's one of the most physically draining and exhausting things there ever is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fight. But preparation and then execution of the plan, it's, they're both important, both vital. All right, and then uh, six, resist the devil. I love this, First Peter 5, 8 and 9. says, uh, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So he's going to run from you, which is really amazing. How did this mighty, basically probably archangel get to be afraid of you? Well, I can tell you right now, he's not afraid of you at all. Is he afraid of Jesus? You better believe he is. He understands Jesus' power far more than we do. Remember how the demons were afraid of Jesus? They were trembling. The demoniac of the Gadarenes, legion, they were afraid he was going to send them to hell right there and then. And the devil, for all his bluster and all his pride, he understands 
how powerful Jesus is. When it says he's filled with rage because he knows his time is short, it's like, well, then, devil, don't have a short time. Have a longer time. He has no choice in the matter. Because Christ is infinitely more powerful than he is. So resist the devil, and what's going to happen is God, through his sovereign power, will surround you and compel the devil to flee from you. He will make the devil run away from you. So, But you have to stand because God is testing you. God never tempts you, but he does test you. And, and it's interesting because the Greek word, both of those, it's the same Greek word. So God is probing you and testing you to see your heart like he did with Abraham. Now I know that you fear God, right? He is, but he's never tempting you, which is pulling you toward evil. That he will never do. But he will allow Satan to pull you toward evil, and he'll watch to see what you do. And if you stand firm by the Spirit, etc., he'll step in in a powerful way. That's the only way I understand fleeing, the devil fleeing. He'll step in and compel the devil to flee. All right, and then, as we said, uh, number seven, cut off your right hand. Uh, there in, in Matthew 5, he's talking about, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. If your right hand caused you to sin, or your right eye caused you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So fear hell. Even as a Christian, fear hell. I'm not saying that we deny that we, there's no condemnation. I'm just saying Jesus brought it up in reference to battle against lust. So we should just at least memorize the verses and say, okay, that kind of life that, that, that leads to heaven and not hell is a life of, to some degree, it seems, gouging out the right eye and cutting off the right hand. What does that mean to you? to gouge out your right eye and cut off your right hand. We know it's not literal because your sin, the seed of sin, isn't in the hand. So what is it, Kevin, what does it mean? I mean, let me speak very plainly. There are some, some brothers that have gone to flip phones away from smartphones. They just made that decision. Why? Why do you think they did? I'm not saying why should everyone. I'm not saying. I think it'd be wrong. It's like the essence of a legalistic cult that we come to the conclusion that smartphones inevitably lead to sin, and so every one of our members must have a non-smartphone or you can't be a member. That is community legalism. However, individually, you need to ask the question. So, Rick, what were you saying? So just, just analyze and be honest. Or say, Holy Spirit, show me what is consistently leading me to sin that would be relevant for me to cut off or gouge out in my life. And then just be bold and do it. And, and just see, I just think that if... if, if you do that, and the Lord is leading you, the Holy Spirit is leading you, and you do it, you're going to get a strength, a vitality in your prayer life, in your marriage, in other areas that you did, never thought was possible. But I think people are cowards. They're not acting decisively in this area. Finally, number eight, lead us not into temptation. So that's prayer, uh, but you know, Owen and others made a distinction between being tempted and being led into temptation, or a temptation seizing you. So the idea is, in the midst of the temptation, and a similar teaching, but the idea is, I don't want to be drowning in a sea of temptation. I want to get up and out of this thing as soon as possible. I want a quick, decisive action when tempted. So please don't let a temptation seize me. Don't lead me into it, okay? But lead me immediately out of it. That's the consistent teaching here. Get out of the temptation as soon as possible. You don't get more credit for standing firm in a harder, more tempting situation. That's not what's being taught here. It's get out of it, get out of it, get out of it. Yeah, go ahead. So those are eight verses that I think will give you specific guidelines on what to do when tempted. Uh, it's 
17 pass, so is it real quick or? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, well, yeah. I had the same experience. And actually, I went ahead and read his book on temptation, which is the second part. And I was like, oh, God, give me some Martin Luther on justification by faith alone. That's the remedy. I mean, the Puritans shown at sanctification. Please know they understood justification by faith alone. But there's a lot of introspective spiritual navel-gazing that can go on. And you can, you're focusing so much on sin that you can forget Jesus. I mean, so don't do that. Please keep going back to justification. Please keep reminding yourself that you're forgiven. But uh, those, are, those are my thoughts. Jim, would you close this brother in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.